you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to Exodus 25. So Exodus 25. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say this before we get started too much. When you walked in, if you walked in those doors, you should have received uh, our, your little communion packet. We're going to be celebrating that at the end of our time together. Um, Sweet Jensen should have given that to you. If you did not get one, she stands ready to give you one now. So if you can um, lift your hands, so that way she can make sure that you have one, and that would be great and terrific. Um, so see her, or raise your hand and get her attention. There you go. <laughs> anybody over here anybody over here anybody anybody all right i think we're good all right so welcome to week 11 of our jesus in the old testament series where we have encountered picture after picture after picture of jesus present among his people. We've seen pictures, pictures of Jesus as the promised one of his people. We've sent, seen him foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament. It's as if the Old Testament portrays Jesus as a light shone through a prism which produces brilliant colors. So as we read the Old Testament, as God illuminates his word to us through his Holy Spirit, what we find is we, we see an absolutely beautiful, dazzling, glorious um, shining display of Jesus, who he was, who he is, who he forever will be. And this is our second week of walking through the tabernacle, um, which we found, find in the Old Testament, seeing Jesus in it. So last week, we focused on the courtyard, the first room in the tabernacle, as well as the articles of worship that pointed to Jesus. So on the inside of the tabernacle, um, these articles are called furniture, I was thinking about that this week. I don't know what maybe your most expensive piece of furniture in your house is. I don't know what your um, most uh, prized piece of furniture in your house. I know some people in their house, their prized furniture is now a pool table, a ping pong table, a jukebox. Maybe even, even though it's maybe not furniture, but maybe even an animal head on the wall. I, I'm not really sure. If, if you want a great story, you need to ask uh, Brother Curtis over here about a time that him... Um, Frank Robinson and my mother, Ann Strickland, went and visited a, uh, just a random visit, a random knock on the door. They walked in. This guy starts talking. They say, hey, we're from First Baptist Ocean Way. He begins to tell them about um, his most prized possession or furniture, which were sculptures that he made. And as he was telling them, um, he began to tell them, I do all nude sculptures. Would you like to see them? And, of course, Mom said, I'll be in the car. And Brother Curtis and, Brother Curtis and Frank said, sure, show us. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's altogether true, but they ended up, some of that was true. Okay. <laughs> well, they, So if you want a great story, please ask them. But here's, I say all that to say this. The older I get, the more, for me, my prized pieces of furniture become my bed and my recliner. <laughs> Can I get an Amen. Some of you understand that. Um, others of you, you will. But here's what I know. In those days, in the Old Testament days, there was nothing more valuable than the ark. So during the Old Testament, the holiest nation on earth was Israel. The holiest city in Israel was Jerusalem. The holiest spot in Jerusalem was this temple mount where the temple was. And the holiest part of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And in this room was the Ark of the Covenant. 
And some of you right now, you're geeking out because you're thinking Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you're like, I didn't know Harrison Ford was in the Bible. He's not, but the Ark is, and that is going to be our focus uh, for today. And what we said last week is before the temple came, before this permanent structure, the people of God worshiped God in this tabernacle for 500 years. Even then, the Holy of Holies was the most sacred part of the tabernacle. So sacred that only the high priest could enter into it and only one time of year. And he had to have a blood sacrifice with him. A thick curtain separated the holy place, which was the inside room or the first room from the most holy, the Holy of Holies, which was the inner room in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And within this Holy of Holies, there was no light. So you think about this, this huge veil. It was four inches thick. And then inside of that was the Ark of the Covenant. There was no light, no natural light in that room, except there was light. And the light was the radiating glory of God that shined from this Ark, showing the very presence of God. So the Holy of Holies had one piece of furniture in it, the Ark of the Covenant, and surprise, 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 Jesus is in it. We see him in it. It points us to him. It all does. So I want us to jump in and behold Jesus in the Ark of the Covenant today. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read Exodus 25 verses 10 through 22. The verses will also be on the screen. And it says this, they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it, two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. Shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we just come before your word. Jesus, help us to see you. And this help us to see, Lord, the, the mercy and the grace that you extend to us. And help us today to take hold of you, to take hold of the mercy and the grace that you offer in our very times of need as we're going to see. May you be exalted, Jesus. In your name, amen. And you may be seated. So we, we know the... The biblical picture here, when Adam and Eve are in the garden, they literally walked in the direct presence of God. And yet they, they sinned. And after their sin, they were driven from the garden. They were separated from God's presence. Cherubim 
with flaming swords were stationed in the east of the garden to prevent Adam and Eve from returning and eating of the tree of life and forever being in their uh, sinful, separated condition. But these cherubim were also there to enforce that they had been separated from God. Now, as we walk through the, the remaining part of the Old Testament, especially getting through Genesis, we see that man can still sacrifice to God. Man can still even pray to God. But the way into the presence of God has been or had been closed. So when Moses was given the law on Mount Sinai, the law included instructions on making a tabernacle with two rooms, as we said last week, the holy place and the most holy place. Included in these directions were making veils. One that was the entrance, which was called the screen, and the other was a huge veil that separated the two inner rooms. We're going to go ahead and show you the picture that we showed you last week of the tabernacle in its fullness. So in the holy place, that first room, as we saw last week, was the lampstand, Shining forth, pointed to Jesus, was a table of showbread, which had the 12 pieces of bread pointing to Israel and God's provision of them. And then the altar of incense, which was uh, pointing to the prayers of God's people and Jesus as the intercessor. And the most holy place, of course, as you see, was the Ark of the Covenant covered by this mercy seat on which were two cherubim that even there they were guarding the presence of God. This was a place where God made his presence visible. This was a place from where God spoke to Moses. So the veil that divided the holy place from the most holy place was embroidered itself with cherubim. Again, reminding all of our separation from God, that sin brings separation. But when we get to this picture and the tabernacle coming, a change is taking place. The absolute prohibition on entering God's presence now becomes not so absolute. And what I mean by that is this. The door into the presence of God had been slammed shut when sin entered into the world, but now that door has been cracked open. Now, it's a small crack, but it is a crack nonetheless. Now, the high priest, one time of year, is able to come into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, with the billowing of smoke, with the altar of incense coming in, the smoke coming in, and with the blood of the sacrifice, he is able to enter into the most holy place. So follow with me here. If you are out in the courtyard, so you're out here in the courtyard, and you are moving toward the holy place, you'd come first to the veil, as I said, called this the screen. The screen had all the same colors as the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Now, when you think about the veil, many people highlight the colors of this veil. So this veil was made of four colors. The colors were blue, or excuse me, white, blue, purple, and scarlet. Now, they say that the white, of course, in this veil points us to purity, that the blue symbolizes that which is of heaven. The purple symbolizes that which is royal or that which is a king and then the scarlet speaks of blood it speaks of sacrifice now others have said that these four colors also point us to the four gospels meaning that in the gospel of matthew jesus is proclaimed as the king of the jews pointing to the purple the the royal color in the gospel of mark jesus is shown as the suffering servant the one who would die pointing us to the scarlet color his shedding of blood. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is portrayed as the righteous one, the perfect one, the sinless one, pointing us to the, the white color in the veil. Jesus 
was tempted in all points, yet without sin. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus, you have the deity of Jesus on full display, the Word becoming flesh from heaven, dwelling among us, symbolizing the blue color. So again, every step of the way, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Even better, as we're going to see in a few moments, through the coming of Jesus in the flesh, there would be a day where that inner veil would no longer be. It would be ripped, torn from top to bottom when Jesus gave his life. When he died on the cross, that separation would be no more. Once again this morning, I want to lay before us three truths that I pray that we would come to see Jesus in this tabernacle, but ultimately Jesus in the Ark of the Covenant. And the first truth is this, God resided at the ark. So God's presence resided at the ark. His presence resided at the ark. So the ark of the covenant was where God's presence resided. It was rectangular in shape. On the top of it was what's called the mercy seat. Anytime that this ark was to be transported, whether the people were traveling in the wilderness, whether they were going out to to battle, it was to be carried with with poles. So the priests had to be careful. Even the priests had to be careful not to accidentally touch this ark because if they touched it, they would die. Even if they were trying to save the ark, to touch it is to die. It's a reminder that God's glory is so amazing and so power, powerful that for sinful people to be in his presence, we die. That's the biblical picture. So at God's command, the people would also carry this ark into battle as a picture of God's presence with them, but also as a picture as it was God who gave victory to them. So God was with them. God was fighting for them. God gave victory to them. Yet ultimately, this whole picture of the ark, it came down to this. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? That was the picture How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And as we've said, and you'll hear it over and over again, the high priest, one time a year, on what was called the Day of Atonement, would come into the Holy of Holies, would approach the mercy seat, and would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat so that the sins of the people could be forgiven. We talked about this a few weeks back, that when when you trace the picture of sacrifices, in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, God made a sacrifice and he clothed Adam and Eve. And it is said that God made a sacrifice, one sacrifice per person. When you get to Exodus 12, you have in Exodus 12 this beautiful picture of the Passover. One sacrifice per family. In Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, you have one sacrifice now once a year for the nation of Israel, for the whole nation. But when Jesus came on the scene, we are told, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world one sacrifice for the world but don't miss this in order to get to the holy of holies the priest first had to stop at the bronze altar and an animal had to be sacrificed pastor tony evans said this if you skip the altar saying i don't have time for rams and lambs and i don't have time for this bloody mess just take me to the holiest of all you won't ever get there you try to get into the presence of God without a sacrifice, you'll never get there. Or you'll be the one that will be sacrificed. So in order to get into his presence, you have to come through blood. That was the biblical picture. But when we get to Hebrews 9, in Hebrews 9, the author describes the ark. And 
its contents in this way. And you have on the screen, it says, Behind the second curtain was the most holy place, we've talked about that, having the golden altar of incense. So let me pause for just a second. Last week we learned that the golden, golden altar of incense was before the veil, not after the veil. So the writer here is saying inside the Holy of Holies you have the Ark of Incense. Well, that's not the, that's not the truest picture. That's not kind of um, a picture of how it happened. But what he's saying is this. When the high priest came in to that Holy of Holies, he, all, he did come in with the incense, meaning he came in with the smoke. The smoke billowed into the Holy of Holies, showing the prayers of God's people. So that you had the altar of incense and then the Ark of the Covenant, in which was the golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and tablets of the covenant. So the tabernacle was constructed so that the Lord would be among his people. Even, even more in a specific way, the ark served as a place where God would manifest, would reveal his presence to his people. Here is such a mind-blowing idea that we just need to sit in it for just a second. The eternal God who is not constrained by the existence of time. So God is outside of time. The infinite God who is not bound by the constraints of space. The transcendent God, the God who is over us, who dwells above and beyond all time and space. The immense God who fills all time and all space condescended, came near to us in our weakness and became manifest in one location. Don't miss this. This God who is not bound by time bound himself to the time-bound experience of his people. This God who is not bound by space bound himself to this box, to this ark. He is above all creational constraints, but he bound himself to them. Put it a different way. God is everywhere, but he was there. He was there. He was there at the ark. And according to Hebrews 9, within the ark, there were three items. The rod of Aaron, the pot of, of manna, and the stone tablets. And let me just kind of show you what this, what this means or what they represented. The pot of manna pointed to that which had been the perfect food for the people of Israel for 40 years. 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And God provided every step of the way, every day of the people of Israel, their life, God provided for them for 40 years. Of course, as we saw last week, Jesus is the bread of life. He is the bread that came down from heaven. He is the one that satisfies us on our journey home. He brings us satisfaction every day of our lives. The second object placed in the ark was Aaron's rod. Now, in one sense, you have an ordinary rod. This is just an ordinary rod, a dead rod. Yet it was a dead rod that a miracle happened. This dead rod cut off from the vine, and yet this rod budded it brought forth flowers in fact it produced almonds a dead thing producing fruit is a miracle but what it speaks of it speaks of resurrection life it speaks of one who was dead and is alive forevermore one who enables us to bear fruit in the most beautiful way and then the third object in the ark was the stone tablets the ten commandments Pointing to two things. First of all, you and I have all sinned. We've all fallen short. We've all missed the mark. We have all broken the law. All of us. We've all broken the law in every single way. We've broken the, the heart of the law in, in all ways. But it also points us to one, to only one who would come and 
perfectly fulfill all the law. Only one. Only one came and perfectly fulfilled the law, and that is Jesus. But it could also be stated this way, and don't miss this, that in the, in the ark was manna, which represented man's rebellion against God's provision. Because what, what did man do as God provided? They complained and complained and complained. And then you have, you have the, the rod, and the story is told of that in, in Numbers 17, but the rod represents man's rebellion against God's leadership. So God gave them leaders, man rebelled, and then you have the law, the Ten Commandments, and it shows man's rebellion against God's law. So the ark points to our rebellion. And yet, man's rejection would be covered by the grace, by the mercy seat, by the mercy of God, and by blood. It would be covered. And I can look on your faces, that's not doing anything for you, but better that blood than yours. Better, better his blood than yours because your blood couldn't get it done. My blood can't get it done. I know that's, that might not do anything in your life, but one day that'll be everything. That'll be everything. So in tying this together and pointing to Jesus, let me just use the words of Spurgeon, who says this, The Ark of the Covenant was the most sacred object in the tabernacle in the wilderness. We've already said that. It was the place over which the bright shining light called the Shekinah glory which was the token of God's presence shown forth. So God's presence shining forth. The ark was doubtless a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. This ark was made of wood, perhaps to typify the human nature of our Lord. But it was wood which did not rot. Acacia, which resists the worm. Truly in Christ there was no corruption in life by way of sin, and there was no corruption in death when he slept for a while in the grave. The ark must be made of the best kind of wood, no presence of rot and untainted. Yet he, he continues, yet the ark, though made of wood, did not appear to be so. For it was completely overlaid with pure gold, so that the deity or perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ could be seen. The ark was acacia wood, yet it was an ark of gold. And he who was truly man was also truly God. At the ark, we see the presence of God residing. And through the ark, we see the presence of God with us. So God's presence resided at the ark. Secondly, God's mercy graciously covered the ark. God's mercy graciously covered the ark. We're told in verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat. Then in verse 17, it says, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So as instructed, a covering was placed at the top of the ark, referred to as the mercy seat. The golden covering covered by two or guarded by two cherubim. It was no ordinary lid. Yes, it was a covering of the ark, but it was a representative of something even more amazing. It was a representation of atonement, of our sins being covered. It was as if God looked down from his dwelling place, and he sees between the cherubim set the law in the ark, of which we have all rebelled against it, and other items that we have that show our rebellion. And God looks down and he sees us in the midst of our rebellion. We have all rebelled against him. But instead of seeing that, atoning blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat so that God could cover it. Instead of 
the breaking of the law and being pictured, now you see a picture of forgiveness of sins. Where God is able to forgive us because of the blood. It's, it's remarkable to think about this. Before God would even give Moses literal Ten Commandments, God would give Moses a picture of how man could be forgiven of breaking his law. I got one amen. The rest of you guys, I don't know what you're listening to. You need to press in for a second because here's the point. Before we broke the law, God made provision for mercy. This is the God that we serve. He gave us, made provision for mercy before we even broke the law. Oh, how good he is. Besides the mercy seat, only the lampstand was made of all gold. So it is said that the mercy seat with the ark would have weighed 177 pounds. Estimated value today would have been $5.5 million. So this ark with the mercy seat would have been the most valuable thing, furniture, in the tabernacle. Now who does it point us to? It points us to Jesus because nothing is more valuable than him. Nothing is more valuable than Jesus. If you have him, you have everything. If you don't have him, you have nothing regardless of what else you might have. Which begs the question then, what is the mercy of God? So what is the mercy of God? And to say that we have received mercy means that we have not received what we deserve. So God's grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. God's mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. So if God treated us according to our sins, we could, we could never come to him. We could never know him. We couldn't have a relationship with him. We couldn't draw near to the throne of grace. But because God is merciful, he doesn't treat us as we deserve. In order to truly grasp the height and the depth of God's mercy, we, we must come to realize what our sin deserves. I guess to put it a different way, what is the wages for your sin? Because Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is what? You can say it again. The wages of sin is? And not just physical death by which we sin and we die physically, but also what? Spiritual death by which we are separated from God. We're separated from him. Meaning that our sin, because of our sin, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve to be punished forever in hell. That's what we deserve. Our rebellion against God isn't a small thing. In fact, it's cosmic treason. What we have done against God is spitting in the face of the king of the universe. And you might be thinking right now, well, I've never done that. Yes, you have. I have. You have. Every single one of us in this room, listening online, we have all looked in the face of a holy God and we have said, no, I like my way better. I like my plans better. No, my pride is way more than your glory. No, me filling up on myself is way more than, than me proclaiming your glory. We have all done that. And because of that, deserving of his wrath, deserving of his punishment, yet there is mercy for us. There's mercy Charles Spurgeon said, God's mercy is so great that you would sooner drain the sea of its water. You would soon deprive the sun of its light. You would sooner make space too narrow than to diminish the great mercy of our God. This is how merciful he 
is when blood was sprinkled on that mercy seat on the day of atonement instead of of death for us God gave us mercy let me put it in a different way God's eyes see right through you and God's eyes see right through me and God sees the sin in your life and he sees the sin in my life but there's one thing that God's eyes can't see through and that is the blood of Jesus so that when God looks at you in your faith, in Christ, God doesn't see you or me in my sin or in your sin. He sees me covered in the blood of Jesus, and that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference in my life, and that makes all the difference in yours. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but let me just say this. After Jesus died, we know that his body was placed in the tomb. That's taking us to next week. On the third day, Mary Magdalene shows up at the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away. And oftentimes we stop there. He is alive. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Praise be to God. And all those things are true. But we also miss something. Because in John 20, beginning at verse 11, it says this. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, notice how these two angels are sitting. They were sitting, hear this, get this, in the shape of the mercy seat. Don't, don't miss this. One is sitting on the left, one is sitting on the right. And I'm sure what we are told when we read this is the cherubim were covering the, the mercy seat covering the, the ark, and yet they're looking down. So what are these cherubim looking at? They're looking at the blood. Well, what are these angels? Probably what they're looking at, I have a sneaky suspicion that there was still blood on that slab where Jesus' body had been laid, and here they are looking at it. It becomes the mercy seat. So Mary Madeline, she leaves that tomb, and she meets our mercy seat. She meets Jesus. He was not in the tomb because the grave could not hold him. And don't miss this. All of our sin was punished upon Jesus at the cross. All of our shame, all of our guilt, all of the stuff that we carry, Jesus took it to the cross and died for it. At the center of God's heart for you and me is mercy. And at the center of his mercy is Jesus. Let me say it again. At the center of God's heart for you, is mercy. And at the center of his mercy is Jesus. Don't miss it. God's mercy graciously covered the ark. Which leads us to number three. God's son is pictured in the ark. So God's son is pictured in the ark. So just step back and look at this cover on top of the ark. The mercy seat. Watch over the years as 83 different high priests encountered the holy of holies. Entered into it on the day of atonement with a sacrifice of an animal. And sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat to signify the forgiveness of sins. Yet none of those priests... And all of the blood that they sprinkled were enough to take away sin. All they did was cover sin. But there is a priest, the Hebrews calls him the great high priest, who came to take away the sins of the world. In fact, in Romans 3, we are told this. Most of the verses I'm going to read are on on the screen. But in Romans 3, beginning at verse 23, it says this. For all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. Bad news, all means you. All means you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. We've all fallen short of his glory. And then it says this in the most beautiful way. It says that we are justified. So whoever is going to be justified is going to be justified in this way by his grace as a gift through the redemption, the payment that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That word propitiation in the Greek literally means mercy seat. Propitiation means that God is satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus. And he puts Jesus forth for the mercy seat. It says to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, his patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, let me just kind of condense all of that to this. All that we see in the Old Testament is really a shadow of what Jesus would do when he came to this earth. When Jesus went to the cross, he paid the price for sinners to be in the presence of God. Meaning, Jesus opened the way for you and I to be able to actually come into God's presence. We don't just swagger into the presence of God. We come humbly into the presence of God and we do so because Jesus died so that we might. He died so that we might. You don't swagger into his presence. But this is the beauty of the whole Bible. It's here in Exodus. It's throughout the New Testament. In Christ, God has made a way for us as sinners to come into the presence of God. And instead of receiving judgment from God, we get mercy. We receive mercy. Jesus is our mercy seat. He is the only place that sinful man can meet a holy God. Only place in Jesus, in him. If you want to have fellowship with God, Jesus is your mercy seat. As we've seen today for years, for years upon years, only an animal sacrifice offered once a year allowed a high priest to push back this curtain and stand in the presence of God. But on that first Good Friday, what we are celebrating this Friday, on that first Good Friday, the curtain was removed. The curtain wasn't just Pushed aside, it was torn. And not torn from bottom to top, it was torn from top to bottom. Jewish historian Josephus says this, that not only was this curtain four inches thick, but if you tied each end of this veil to two separate horses, those horses were not able to rip this veil. But God could. And God did. He did. God kicked the door in, so to speak, on their ongoing religious activity. And there was and there is no longer any separation from God. For we now have fellowship with God. Now, one sad report tells us that after this veil was ripped from top to bottom, that the priest actually went back in and sewed this veil back up. Just imagine this. They continue their rituals. They continue doing religious things. God removes the barrier. And what do we do? We put it right back up. God simplifies things. He uncomplicates things. And what do we do? We just make them more complicated. It's kind of what we do. We love our religion. We love our works. We love to say, watch my sacrifices. Look how I'm doing. Look what I'm doing. Look at the things that I do. The things that I've done. Meaning, we love to earn stuff. 
We love earning stuff, whatever that stuff might be. Yet let me say this. Let me lay this before us this morning. Any system that complicates what God has uncomplicated is an insult to God. Let me say it again. Any system that complicates what God has uncomplicated is an insult to God. Today, we, we don't have a tabernacle, but we have a mercy seat. And it's not found in an institution. It's not found in a building. It's not found in Jerusalem, and it's not found in Rome. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our mercy seat. And the Bible says not only is he a mercy seat, he is our throne of grace. Let me tell you what the writer of Hebrews tells us to do with this throne of grace. Look at, we're going to actually put the, the verse on the screen so you can see it. Hebrews 4, 16. We're going to recite it at the end of the service, but it says this. Let us then with confidence, and stop for just a second, and let me just walk you through this. On the day of atonement, the priest, the, the high priest, never, ever entered into the presence of God with confidence. They entered with absolute fear. And they would actually tie a rope around them because in their minds, if I haven't confessed all my sins to God and I walk in the presence of God, I'm going to die. And there's going to be a rope around my waist that if I drop dead, they're going to pull me out. They didn't walk with confidence, but we're told to, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, which is Jesus, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's the deal today. What do you need today? What do you need today? Whatever your need today, are you looking to Jesus for it? Are you looking to Jesus for his grace and his mercy in the midst of that need? Are you saying, all I need is just to roll one more sleeve up and I can make this happen? All I need is for one more person to come on, on board and we can make this happen. Are we looking outside of Jesus for what only Jesus can give us? Look to him. I'm going to go ahead and ask the musicians to come forward, and we are going to stop. We're going to have a time of invitation where we say whatever God is telling us to do, that we would do it. If God is speaking to your heart in this moment, we're about to celebrate communion. This is a perfect time and a needed time for us to get our hearts right with God. The altars will be open. I'll be up here. Brother Curtis will be up here. Pastor Jordan will be standing by. If you need to talk, if you... Anything that God has laid on your heart to do, I don't care what it is. It could be join, it could be pray, it could be you need salvation. May that happen in this moment. But may we take time to prepare our hearts as we are about to celebrate communion that we don't do so in an, in an unworthy manner, but that we do so in full reverence and as well as celebration of what Jesus has done. So I'm going to ask you to stand in this moment and let us pray. Father, we... In this holy moment, we just turn to you. And Lord, we look to you as the one who, Jesus, you are our mercy seat. You are the one. You are the place. You are the altar by which we find mercy and grace that sustains us, that saves us and sustains us. Father, I don't know the needs represented across this room. I don't know the needs of those listening at home, but you do. You know every single need. And Lord Jesus, you promised to those who know you, that we can come to your throne and we can find mercy and we can find grace. May we find that today. And the, the moments that we have, Lord, help us now in this moment to just humble ourselves before you, to seek you so that we may come next to this 
time of communion in a a humble and a reverent, yet also in a celebratory way. Let's finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.